Let's go. You're listening to Making Data Simple, where we make the world of data effortless, relevant, and yes, even fun. Hey folks, welcome back to Making Data Simple. I'm Martin here. As always, I like to thank our producers, Kate Main and Steve Templeton. Uh, those individuals are champions every day of the week. Today, I have the pleasure of chatting with Dr. Wendy Cornell. Wendy is unusual for an IBM researcher in that she's joined the company after spending 20 years as a research and leader in the pharmaceutical industry. One thing that she said that uh, I thought was really you know, kind of her mindset where she's at today is it says, I've always straddled the life science and technology boundary. When I worked in the pharmaceutical industry, I leveraged technology to advance the science. At IBM, I leveraged knowledge of the science to shape the technology. In summary, Wendy is an IBM research strategy lead for drug and discovery and research life science liaison to Watson Health. And she's also credentialed in as an IBM Q advancer for quantum computing, which I had a couple questions on there as well. Welcome, Wendy. Thanks for being on the podcast. We appreciate you being here. Thanks very much for the opportunity to be here. I think the best way to start is, you know, I give you this quick introduction, but I'd like you to introduce yourself if you wouldn't mind. Give us a little uh, history on yourself, what brings you here, and, you know, if you could throw your brand, if you will, in there. Well, I'm somebody who's always been very interested in science, and certainly as a, an undergrad, I became very interested in biomolecular science and protein structure, but I'm very much a computational person. I'm not somebody who you know, really enjoys being in the lab, but I'm very enthusiastic about using the computers and being able to do all kinds of what-if experiments uh, at scale and with increasing degrees of precision. So uh, my whole career, I've focused on, well, let's see, I want to say computational biomolecular sciences with a short minor deviation, which I'll mention in a minute. So just you know, pretty briefly, I out of undergrad, I, I had a nice opportunity to work for a newly formed pharma computational chemistry drug discovery modeling group that was formed half from people who had already been doing relevant tasks in different departments in that research organization and half bringing in people from the outside. And that was at Upjohn, which is now part of Pfizer. But that was a fantastic modeling group. From there, I'm really able to to understand how the whole field has evolved over decades from that nice early experience. So I was there for three years, and then I went off to graduate school at UC San Francisco. Again, a terrific place, very collaborative, very nice set of faculty working on different computational approaches and also relevant experimental faculty. Um, and then I spent a year in um, Heidelberg as a postdoc at EMBL. And from there, I went back into pharma. I was at Park Davis in Michigan for two years, um, also now part of Pfizer. <laughs> so I, I like to think of myself sort of as a, an almost legacy Pfizer employee. And then I went to Novartis in New Jersey. And I was there for seven years, the last couple of which I was leading the team. And then I went to Merck, <laughs> where I also led a chemistry modeling and informatics team in New Jersey. And then this is the period I was alluding to where I wasn't specifically doing computational biomolecular science. I was My last four years at Merck, I was leading a knowledge discovery, knowledge management team. 
that was pretty interesting. It gave me a broader view across the organization. And then finally, <laughs> I ended up at IBM where, as you said, I'm now bringing my understanding of the use case to, to help shape the technology rather than the other way around. How do you define yourself then? I mean, are you a technologist, you're a pharmacist, <laughs> chemist, all of those? I mean, where do you think your sweet spot is? Well, you know, it, it's kind of relative, right? Like I like to say it, it depends who else is, is in the room, how I define myself. If I'm at a at a party with a, a bunch of my um, former Merck uh, medicinal chemistry colleagues, well, then I'm, I'm not a chemist, right? They're the chemists. <laughs> I'm the modeler. At IBM, I'm among a you know smaller group of people who really knows the chemistry or really knows the, the drug discovery. So I'm somehow very much at that interface between the, the technology and the use case. So, I mean, I guess I'm really what I was called, you know, 30 years ago. I'm a computational chemist or a computational biochemist who's very, very, very much aware of the, the technologies that I'm using. What goes into computational biology? I mean, what kind of classes? I mean, what, what's your background that you have to take? We've got a lot of students at listen. I think they'd be interested in hearing, you know, what gets you there? How, how do you bridge that gap between both you know, technology and essentially chemistry, et cetera? That's a great question. And that actually came up on a call. Um, I gave a lecture yesterday to um, Lebanese American University through mm-hmm. the IBM University program. And um, it was about AI and healthcare and life science. And at the end, you know, one of the students was asking about, uh, you know, what are the most common training paths? And interestingly, in our department, People on the life science side have mostly trained in what we call the mechanistic life science fields, right? Um, genomic, you know, molecular modeling, whereas the colleagues on the healthcare side are largely computer scientists who've specialized in healthcare type data, you know, such as electronic health records and, and so on. And there's no hard and fast rule that says you have to do it that way. But that that is an interesting trend that I've observed so far. And there are a lot of nice hybrid programs out there. I mean, I think when you're doing your early training, it's good to go reasonably deep in something just so that you, you know, you gain an appreciation of a particular domain. And you also just recognize that domains do have a lot of depth to them, right? You don't want to be kind of jack of all trades, master of none. But further along in your training, I think really at the interfaces between disciplines if you can get in, into a program that is built around that, I think that's really where um, where everything is evolving and there's kind of appropriate flexibility to embrace the new opportunities while still recognizing the, you know, the foundations of the, the component fields that are coming in, like the, the computer science or the biology. Have you taken your COVID shot? I figure if you do it, uh, with all your your knowledge, then it, it's got to be safe for everybody. So that's why I asked the question. You got your COVID shot? You all in? Oh, absolutely. I've had my second COVID shot. Um, we are absolutely all in in my uh, family. And uh, yeah, certainly yeah. Um, we make it clear scientists live in this house and we absolutely believe <laughs> in the virus and uh, we believe in wearing masks and uh, not risking each other and, and each other's relatives and and so on. Right. Is it Pfizer? And no, I was actually offered Moderna at the place where mm-hmm. I had my appointment. Yeah. You went with Pfizer because that's where you spent a lot of time. But uh, I understand. You go with what you got. 
you're with Merck, you're with Pfizer at one point in, in time. What was the attraction to IBM? I'm curious before we move on, we recruit you. Or do you see something that was really in your sweet spot that you could help IBM with in terms of like what you're doing right now in research for drug discovery and Watson Health? As is often the case when someone makes a, a career transition, I was considering other options just because my four years in uh, text mining and knowledge management, and the team was also called informatics IT at one point. I mean, <laughs> the various names, I think, give you an idea of what we're doing. We were driving a number of big projects to completion. And then most of my pharma career had involved, you know, three, four, five-year chunks of, of doing something. So at that point, it just made sense to ask, well, you know, what next? Something else at Merck, something else within pharma, or something somewhere else. I even considered, did I want to consider doing something with healthcare informatics, since that field was growing so much. And I even went and did uh, an executive MBA at my undergrad institution, Case Western Reserve in Cleveland. And it was the first year that they had implemented a special healthcare track in collaboration with Cleveland Clinic. So um, I had the privilege to be in this really particularly dynamic, big executive MBA cohort that included people from a lot of different industries, but definitely a lot of um, high flyers from Cleveland clinic. I ended up talking to somebody who I knew from my past life at IBM, just, you know, what's going on there, any opportunities. And it, it so happened that they were thinking about doing something with their molecular modeling capabilities and, and drug discovery. So, you know, after a few conversations that it was just clear that, that this would be a really ex exciting opportunity. Fantastic. So help me out. Look, we use a lot of big words like research, drug discovery, science liaison, Watson Health. Anyway, what do you do on a daily basis? It's a combination of thinking about science, seeing what papers are coming out. Like I have these alerts set up, so I go to my email and I don't even have to think about looking, right? You know, interesting papers and tweets are pushed out to me. And then there's also a lot of coordination involved. So we had multiple meetings today involving my team, talking to um other teams in the org about really how we can get our, you know, capabilities into the cloud uh, in a way that's consistent across the organization. So you can have different modules, different services, plugging and playing with each other eventually. Um, and these big organizations, uh, they offer so much, you know, richness and, and opportunity. And there's also, you know, quite simply a need to, to coordinate efficiently and, and be talking to each other in a formal and an informal way. So really, that's how I spend a lot of my day. And then, of course, with my own team, interacting with my own team. You know, how are things going? Are we running into any blocks? And uh, do you see any opportunities we could be pursuing? Uh, how is the strategy evolving? Can you give me an example of the outcomes of something that your team drives? I mean, what IBM would drive on, like, your drug discovery technologies team? We're not a drug company. What outcomes do you see are you providing to the business or for... Uh, other companies, technologies, maybe even pharmaceutical companies? You know, we don't do the science for them. I'm not doing exactly the same job that I did in pharma, where I was, you know, developing and evaluating capabilities, but also applying them to specific use cases, you know, with experimental goals to get to move drugs along the pathway, along the path to FDA approval. But here we're, we're developing capabilities that should enable you know, people like me and my former teams in pharma to do their jobs more efficiently and 
more creatively. It's about optimization in terms of adding machine learning and AI to the the drug discovery programs that they have. Is that how it works? New capabilities that are in some ways evolutions of the tools that pharma has been using for decades and which have been evolving for decades. But the deep learning is really revolutionizing things quite a bit, the deep learning AI. And it's opening the door to generating, having models that generate molecules rather than just classify molecules that a chemist has thought up or, or are that in a, are in a database of molecules that could be purchased or that are you know, already in a pharma's collection. And so these generative capabilities are really pretty exciting and they're being explored for a number of domains, but, uh, but definitely for pharma. IBM has what's called a five and five program. That's, you can see it on our website, et cetera. Can you talk about it, what it is, what it's not, what the focus areas is? Yes. So the IBM annual five and five identifies five technologies that we think are going to be uh, very relevant um, within the next five years. And so you can actually go back uh, and see not only what the predictions were for this year, but what they were in past years. Um, and I think uh, a lot of them have really been borne out. For this year, it was focused on accelerated discovery using different methods like deep search modeling and, and simulation enhanced with AI generation and so on. And so one of the five specific examples was not drug discovery, but we chose to focus on drug repurposing. This is where you can identify drugs that have already been approved and showed to be efficacious, effective for the original disease that they were looking at. But then the drug is somehow seen to also be effective for another disease that sort of discovery, that repurposing is a much faster path to getting a drug for a new disease to the consumer, again, because it's already gone through trials for, for safety. So you often still have to do some additional clinical trials for the new disease, but it's a much faster path to market. It, it, to systematically and purposefully pursue drug repurposing, you need to have uh, very relevant data sources and so real-world evidence or, or health, electronic health records are a really useful source, and um, we've done some work around that. And basically, you can just see, you can look for populations of patients that are taking um, a given drug and then are actually seeing some benefit for the disease, that uh, another disease that they have, but it's one that the, the drug was not approved for. So how do you do that, though? I mean, look, with the protection of personal health information, what is your data corpus that we're able to use to be able to identify crossover drug finding solutions via drug in other cases or other, I don't know, other diseases, as you mentioned? How are you able to do that? I mean, what's the, the corpus that we're able to use to be able to do that? As you're thinking about that answer, I've been in the AI field, and it always, you know, data data being the new oil. I mean, but it is the nervous system. And, uh, and like China with less PHI, et cetera, they can get a lot of information and be able to predict maybe better than we are with when you have personal health information that's being protected, rightfully so. So my question is, is what, how do we use it and how do we uh, 
get that corpus of data in the speed that we need to. So IBM has access or ownership of some really nice real-world data, real-world evidence sources. So one is the Explorus data. That was uh, an acquisition of a company that was actually spun out from Cleveland Clinic. It's electronic health records. And, and of course, when we're working with them or when a, a customer uh, is working with the Explorus data, it's de-identified, right? I mean, there are some very strong laws, appropriate laws that govern the protection of that sort of data. And you're really just wanting to look at trends in aggregate. So we have that data source. We also have insurance. People are getting mass data from different sources. You put them all together and you still have enough information. So we protect the individual, but we also are able to identify crossover diseases for a certain drug. So we help people, help pharmaceutical companies make that crossover, et cetera. Is that, is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's exactly right. That's interesting, by the way. You know, the one thing, so I get the crossover to another disease. Are we also doing work around side effects between different drugs? Let me, let me give you a scenario. I know people that have that age and they may have like a plethora of drugs that they take for whatever reason, all, all prescribed in the right manner. But you now, pretty soon you're looking at somebody that has their Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday drug cases. And it's like, oh my goodness, how do you know which reacts with one another? They read about doctors, hey, change of prescriptions based on how to react with another drug somebody has taken. It seems like that would be a prime field for trying to figure out how drugs interrelate to one another. Kind of an offshoot of what you just described on drugs being treatable for other diseases. Are we doing that as well? Oh, my healthcare colleagues are pursuing a lot of nice applications of AI and real world evidence to, you know, looking at things like um, disease progression modeling, for example, patient switching from one treatment to another and, and trying to understand why. So yeah, there are a lot of really phenomenal applications out there for that kind of data. And your question actually also brings up another aspect of uh, the drug repurposing approach that I should mention. So the beauty of the real world evidence is that, you know, it's real, okay? It, it's re representing the, the reality of what diseases patients have, you know, usually more than one, what drugs they're taking. So there's a lot of information in there, but it's more complex in many ways than the, the data that you get from a, a clinical trial where they have stronger inclusion and exclusion criteria so that they can draw statistically meaningful conclusions from the clinical trial results. The real world evidence data, again, there's just a lot more variety in there. So when my colleagues at the Haifa site led by uh, Yishai Shimoni are looking at the real world evidence to identify repurposing opportunities, they have to use a method called causal inference to really untangle what drugs are really driving an impact on a new disease. And what I mean by that is, if you think about patients who have high blood pressure, for example, well, when the physicians are prescribing different drugs for those patients, um, they're considering not only the, the fact that they have high blood pressure, but they may also have some other concerns as well. So certain drugs for blood pressure may be contraindicated for people who have, you know, who are taking some other drug or who have some other condition. When you're looking at 
the real world evidence for correlations between people taking a certain drug and then um, having a positive impact on another disease. You have to realize that it's not, you can't just draw a direct connection between the drug and the disease. You also have to take into account those related factors because they may also be having an impact. Fascinating. Let me see if I can say this right. Uh, five and five is predictions that we do every year from research. This year's theme was radically accelerating the process of discovery that'll enable our, our sustainable future. I know there are five, the five areas, obviously, five and five. The five that I know of, I hope I get this right, is one was capturing and transforming CO2 to mitigate climate change. Number two is modeling Mother Nature to feed a growing citizen while reducing carbon emissions. Three is rethinking batteries before we have to rethink our world. Four is sustainable materials, sustainable products, sustainable planet, and five, learning from our past for a healthier future. Is what you're talking about today in the number five there, learning from our past for a healthier future? Is that essentially how it works with five and five? And how is that organized and driven towards success? The drug repurposing using real world evidence, that's the fifth five and five example. So learning from our past, from the health records for a healthier future. And, you know, in this case, it was based on the fact that we've already had work going on uh, in this area for the last couple of years. The HIFA team has some publications out there. We think that it would, it's highly probable that um, in the next few years, this sort of real world evidence will be leveraged more uh, to identify opportunities to repurpose a drug. And certainly if you think about the circumstances we've been living in for the last 14 or so months, the COVID pandemic, um, that really drove a lot of interesting discussions around, you know, how can technology uh, help in different ways with this pandemic? And when you think about how it could help drug discovery or therapeutic discovery, um, certainly the vaccines were the, the short-term answer that people were most optimistic about. And, you know, we can see that there have been a number of successes there. We mentioned the Pfizer and, and Moderna vaccines. I mean, they, they showed 95 and 94% efficacy in the clinical trials. Anthony Fauci thought that was really just terrific. Uh, it's hard to compare the J&J &J numbers directly, so I won't, but that single-shot vaccine is also perceived to be uh, incredibly efficacious as well. Uh, and then there, there are other vaccines too. So, so really, it, it was recognized that some acceleration of that process would help. But, but in theory, it was believed a year ago that it should be possible to, to bring a vaccine to market within a year or so. And indeed, that's what happened. But when you think of new drug discovery, that really takes about you know, 10 years. And it's hard to speed it up because there are certain models in place to assess the efficacy, to assess the safety. And you can only accelerate that so much with technology. And again, that's to discover a new drug. But if you could identify uh, a drug to repurpose, that could be taken to, to market and to the patients potentially much faster. And, and you know, thinking about COVID in particular, if you were using uh, real world evidence, you would have to gather data for a few months, right? So that, that you had data on patients who were infected with the virus and were taking other drugs. So, you know, in March of last year, there probably would not have been enough data 
in place, but um, certainly enough people unfortunately became infected that I think more data would have been available pretty quickly to support that sort of analysis. And if you look at you know the drugs that were you know essentially repurposed, one would be remdesivir, and that's an example of a drug where it was originally developed for a related target. So it was kind of natural or, or obvious to test it out for, um, for a related disease like COVID. And I should mention, you know, the other main way in the past that people have identified drugs for repurposing were just through serendipity. And of course, uh, Viagra is a well-known example for erectile dysfunction, as yeah. well as Rogaine. Yeah, Rogaine for... Yeah. For hair loss, those both started out as cardiovascular drugs and then were seen to have uh, side effects that the patients found beneficial. I was about to say that, you know, all those that you mentioned, repurposing or finding a drug's use case is very different than what it started from. It's very common the way I understand it. I mean, you know much better than me. I mean, you've mentioned Viagra, Rogaine, other, other areas that you, you head down one path and all of a sudden you say, oh, well, that's an unexpected side effect. That's good and can help solve this disease or this issue or whatever the case may be. That's right. We don't want to just rely on serendipity. We want to accelerate this, this whole process. In the name of acceleration, given we're adding machine learning into the mix here to drive drug repurposing, uh, you, you mentioned earlier, look, usually it's a 10-year time frame. If we're using repurposing, if we're, we're throwing uh, machine learning on top of it to accelerate, just ballpark. I know everything's different. I know there's, a, there's all kinds of different factors that come into play. Where can we, we come down from 10 years? Is it five years? Is it two years? Is it one year? What do, you, what do you think we're able to achieve through the technology that you're driving? I would think we could go from 10 years to down to, to two or three. I think that's quite reasonable. Presume that's just the technology part, then you still have to go through normal approvals, FDA approval or whatever the case may be. Yes, I mean, is that after that two years or are you saying, no, that's inclusive of approval as well? Well, I think about three, if you're looking at both the tech and the clinical trials. And, and again, the, the length of the cr- clinical trial will depend on the specific new disease that you're trying to reposition into because some trials take longer than others due to the, the endpoints that they're looking at, as well as the, the difference of between the disease that the drug was originally approved for and the one that you're trying to reposition it into. And I also presume then that um, the work that you're doing here around model simulation, deep search, can actually improve the, the trial simulation. How do I want to say it? It'll, it'll improve the approval process or expedite that process because now you've got hell of a lot of data to justify the results that you're seeing. Whereas before, you know, you had to go capture that data after you just randomly discovered something. I think I would answer that in a couple of different ways. So are you, are you comparing drug like new drug discovery with drug repurposing, or are you just look, asking me about one of those and using accelerated discovery versus not? Well, this is the way I look at it. And look, this is a novice, a very green view. I mean, you're in the field. I'm not, uh, although I've been in the AI field. My point is like, typically you may discover Rogaine, you know, and it, it was a side effect. All right. When you discover the, the you know, that may have a, a another beneficial purpose, 
Then you take that, then you go, all right, now we've got to do the clinical trials. Uh, we've got to make sure what we're seeing is accurate. So we have the data to support it so that we can get FDA approval. Pretty soon you're in 10 years or whatever. With the technology that you have, we're being proactive. We're able to identify other impacts around another disease or whatever that uh, you do that through machine learning model simulation. You've got the data. My point is, is like you said, we should be able to decrease it from 10 to two to three years. I got to believe that also includes just the overall approval of the drug from like the FDA because they have more data to back the diagnosis that you or the, the results that you found. I think I understand what you're asking. Um, so does having um, the sort of additional computational data accelerate yes. the FDA approval process? You know, some things are very predictable, some are not, and really they're very much in charge. So, so they do want to see specific uh, experimental endpoints and analyses and so on. And if you're bringing in something additional, I imagine uh, that you know may be of interest to them some of the time. It's it's interesting. They um, are increasingly, it's my understanding, accepting you know model data in some circumstances. But I'm not sure that just bringing in some of the analysis that we've talked about. I'm, I'm not sure how much that would potentially uh, accelerate things or increase their, their confidence at the moment. Maybe it probably just remains to be seen. The reason I ask the question is, look, government often doesn't move very fast for whatever reason. Point is, is that a lot of times a drug could be ready for public consumption, but it still has to go through FDA approval. And you want those approvals for all the reasons that the approvals exist. But sometimes they take a hell of a lot of time. And it's a shame that somebody could be benefiting from that drug, but they're unable to get it because it's got to go through FDA approval. I guess my only thought was within all the science that you're adding, models, simulation, machine learning, that we could speed that up because now you've got a, you know, a ton of statistical data that's just inherent to the process that you're driving versus having to go get it after you discover something as a random event. Not that it would be random, but you get my point. I thought it would be just to increase. I mean, think of the, let's go back to COVID real quick. It's fair to say that we were able to turn those vaccines around in just imaginary, uh, unbelievable uh, turnaround time uh, that we could have never done in the past, including FDA approval. I got to believe the addition of m machine learning will only help with that process in, in, in the future. And part of the the acceleration discovery prediction that, that IBM is driving at five and five. I think it wraps it all together, at least from my perspective. Maybe I'm talking out of turn. Well, so the, the machine learning definitely has the potential to, to reveal trends and, and to explain some of the trends that are being found. Um, and then I think, you know, integrating that into uh, approvals will, will just take some time. People have to become comfortable and confident about those sorts of predictions. Let me ask you a question. You mentioned COVID earlier and its impact on the world. It's been a trying experience for many, you know, lives lost, et cetera. But my question to you is, based on your background experience, what are the positives that you think will come out of the last 14 months? Well, people will probably take their health and their freedoms uh, much less for granted, I think. I think they also... I hope we'll appreciate the, the dedication and 
you know, the relative agility of the healthcare providers. It's obviously a very big and fairly uncoordinated uh, system in the U.S. compared to some of the other countries. But, you know, a lot of things do seem to be happening right because of people and policies and research that's gone on. So I really hope there's a greater appreciation for that. And then possibly also more interest in working remotely or, or, or having more flexibility around what return to work means. So I think it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Anything around IBM's five and five, the work you're doing with IBM research, drug discovery, whatever that uh, we didn't get to that you wanted to make mention of or, or a topic that uh, we missed? Well, in terms of the um, real world evidence for, for drug repurposing, I also wanted to mention as, as somebody who's originally trained as a, a mechanistic scientist, a, a life scientist, you know, I'm very much used to working with molecules and protein structures and so on to, to ask and answer questions. It's interesting that people try to apply a lot of those methods that predict whether or not a drug will bind to the protein target that's associated with a new disease. They try to use those methods to identify repurposing opportunities. And, you know, there's also um, a lot of attempts at repurposing that involve just kind of blindly screening libraries without some sort of biological hypothesis that would motivate looking at one drug the way the way we looked at remdesivir for covid when it had actually been developed for other things or or when you take a drug that was developed for one kind of cancer and test it for another kind of cancer there are a lot of these computational and experimental approaches that aren't as well focused or motivated and one of my colleagues, Alan Edwards at Structural Genomics Consortium, had a really nice perspective piece a few months back in Journal of Chemical Information and Modeling, where he just asked the question, you know, how much success has come out of those approaches in contrast to the ones that uh, the repurposing opportunities that were identified through serendipity, for example, like Viagra and Rogaine, um, it, that was serendipity, but it was also based on clinical data. You know, you saw how a drug was actually behaving in a person. I think the real world evidence is also offering that opportunity to see how drugs are doing in people in all their biological complexity. And and that's why I think the real world evidence for repurposing is really pretty well justified as a five and five. And as a life scientist, I also agree with Alan. I think, you know, in a year or so when um, hopefully we've made a lot more progress against COVID, it'll be really useful to go back and look at all these attempts to do repurposing without clinical data and without clear biological hypotheses and just see how successful they really were. Uh, I, I think this is a really interesting time in our field of molecular modeling, computational chemistry, and so on, because you can see from all these publications that are appearing really quickly in the archives that these methods are really evolving quickly. People are, are bringing in more and more AI. There's more and more data available. Um, and so it's exciting to see this field that I first entered many, many years ago really taking off these days. But then it's also motivating the question, well, where should we really be applying different methods and why? Where will they really have the most impact? And I think we'll really have a, a pretty good answer to that in the next year or so. Wow, Andy, that's a fantastic summary. <laughs> fantastic summary. You know what also occurs to me? 
you must have killed organic chemistry. You must have got A plus plus. Yes. Now you're just mocking me now. <laughs> no, I actually like the I like biochemistry. I, my daughter is going to be a pharmacist. She's in pharmacy school, and she was talking about organic chemistry yesterday. That just what you were talking about. All this, I'm thinking, man, you you know your stuff. <laughs> That's no joke. Fantastic. Well, there you have to push the electrons around. You have to know what changes are going to happen. You know, my, my focus is more, okay, this is what the molecule looks like now. What new molecule would fit into this protein binding pocket and satisfy these properties? But, but in terms of actually being the person that figures out what you have to mix together to make everything happen, no, that's somebody else's skill set. The research buildings that I worked in were filled with lots of medicinal chemists who, who knew how to do that. Either way, I'm going to have my daughter listen to this and say, this is who you could be. <laughs> this is what studying does for you in, in the scientific field. I think it's amazing how you've been able to combine tech uh, with science. Speaking of, there's two more quick questions, and then I'll let you go. Uh, I've taken enough of your time. But uh, speaking to women in STEM fields, any advice that you have for them? So STEM, what, science? Technology, engineering, and math? Is that is that the acronym? Yes, correct. Right. So, you know, with all those skills, especially the tech, you know, people should definitely make use of all the information that's available online. You know, where do you want to spend your time? What undergrad programs do you want to be in? People who graduate from those programs, where do they go? There's really no excuse anymore not to be really well informed. You know, you can go into different online forums or maybe onto LinkedIn and look for different people who are maybe doing the kind of, of work you would like to do. You can find people to connect with. You can find events to be involved with like hackathons and so on. IBM certainly offers a lot of interesting opportunities, for example, around uh, quantum computing, which is a, a really exciting emerging field, uh, a lot of online tutorials and events. So yeah, just make use of your tech skills. And then, you know, just try, don't be afraid to fail. If you reach out to somebody and they don't reply, or if you try to, you know, write some code or, or, or understand somebody else's code and can't do it the first time, I think uh, most success really follows a lot of failures and a lot of attempts. Just one last question. Encapsulating everything you've talked about, what technology or what are you most excited about moving forward? Just to finalize, what excites you most? Well, short term, it's really the, the generative AI. We, you know, we're taking this new AI capability and, and we're bringing in all this, this knowledge that we have from pharma about what drugs you know, really should look like. Um, and so it's just a great intersection of a, of a new AI capability and something that's a, a pretty big change for the field, right? There are always new technologies coming out, but I, I switching from being able to go from classification to generation is, is really a, a big one. So the intersection of the generation capabilities with all this data and know-how that's out there that pharma has published on, that's really exciting. I think longer term, the, the quantum computing is just going to be simply amazing. And I think for um, especially people who are, Earlier in their careers, that's something they should definitely explore and be aware of. And it might be something that they like and decide they want to get more involved with. But, but even if that they decide that's not their, their primary or secondary interest, I think just being aware of, of how it works will be really you know, important to future workplace as well as just being a, a citizen 
right? And understanding how it potentially impacts economies and, and security and so on. Fantastic. Thank you for being with us today, sharing your expertise. This was really good. I enjoyed it. I hope I was okay today. <laughs> no, exactly. you're excellent, Al. Thank you. Well, thank you. Uh, I presume we'll put five and five on the in the website where individuals that are listeners can can gain access or, or learn more about five and five. Any other locations you'd have them go to? Anywhere that you'd have them reach out to you, or just five and five is the best spot. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'd, I'd say just five and five for now. That sounds good. Thank you for being here and for um, for sharing your expertise. Greatly appreciated. Oh, thank you, Al. It was a pleasure. And, and good luck uh, mentoring your daughter. It sounds like you're a great uh, daughter dad, so, so keep that up. I've got an audiologist, a pharmacist, and one that's going to law school, so hopefully I'm, I'm covered uh, one way or another. <laughs> so, hey, listeners, thank you for listening. As always, hit us on almartintalksdata at gmail.com, and until next time, we'll see you on the podcast. See you all. Thanks for listening to the Making Data Simple podcast, where we make data fun. Be sure to visit ibmbigdatahub.com forward slash podcasts to access the show notes and uncover even more great episodes. Remember, the views expressed here are those of the host and its guests and do not necessarily represent the views of IBM. Until next time, let's go over and out. Oh.